Thank you, Music and Worship Ministry, for leading us to the throne. There are days like this when I'd like to just linger longer in something like that. Marvelous. After the choir piece, Sherry Michelle patted me on the knee and said, Good luck, darling. <laughs> it's very, very hard to follow that kind of thing. But God's word is sufficient and we'll trust the Lord in this time. It can be very difficult uh, to change merely by uh, our own experience and even Bible reading and Bible teaching. And the Lord knows that. It can be cha a challenge to change. And no, no matter what happens, sometimes we struggle with that. Reminds me of these two friends that used to duck hunt together. One was uh, bright and optimistic, and the other one was dour and pessimistic. Critical, negative, whined all the time. It didn't matter what in the world was going on. It was always bad. And he would criticize his other friend's approach to hunting. Everything from his, uh, his uh, shotgun to uh, the ammunition that he used and how he held his rifle. And one off-season, he said, I am going to finally impress this friend of mine. And so he got a new bird dog and trained him. And they went out hunting, and he got the first bird. And when it came time to retrieve the duck, his uh, dog walked on water to get it. And he grabbed the bird and retrieved it and brought it back. And he looked at his whiny, pessimistic, negative friend and said, now what do you think about that? And the man said, well, what's wrong with your dog? Can't he swim? It just doesn't matter. Some people are not impressed enough to make changes. The disciples were much like that. They had seen the feeding of the 5,000 in the previous text, and they had heard the most wonderful words roll off the lips of the greatest teacher ever to live. Now, mind you, Jesus is more than a great teacher. He is God. Nicodemus said, we know that you are a teacher sent from God, and he had it all wrong. He was actually God come to teach, is who he was. But uh, the greatest words ever spoken rolled off of Jesus' lips. In fact, teacher is Mark's... Um, uh, most uh, common referent to Jesus when he speaks of Jesus. And even though they had seen the feeding of the 5,000, and even though they had heard his words, they still were hardened of heart in this text. Uh, beginning in verse number 52, you'll find that there. But I want to read the whole story here. Because what we have here in this text is that we have an impressive miracle, and actually combined with John 6, a series of miracles in this one event. And the disciples will find that what Jesus does here is that he actually rejects many of their values and offends much of the world with this remarkable miracle. I want you to look with me beginning in verse number 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. Now, Jesus had a kind, the kind of crowd every preacher would ever want, and here he sends them away. Now, why is that? Well, if you compare this with John chapter 6, another account of this miracle, you'll find in John 6, 15, that after feeding the 5,000, they made a rush along with the disciples to crown Jesus king of Israel. And so they did that on the basis of his feeding of the 5,000. Well, make no mistake about it, Jesus will own all the thrones and government entities of the world one day. 
but not before the cross and resurrection, the church age, and His return. Jesus didn't want the throne of Rome. Their vision was too limited. He wanted the thrones of all the world and all the cosmos is what He wanted. But He wanted to achieve that by death and by resurrection. And so what He does here in verse 45 is that immediately or quickly He compels or forces His disciples away to the other side. In other words, He evaporates the messianic fervor of this crowd to remove them from His presence so they do not get the attention of Rome. He had some difficulty apparently doing so. Apparently they complained because He has to force them. He did it immediately in verse 45, and He made His disciples get into the boat. He compelled them. He forced them to do so. So Jesus here rejects human power schemes. Let's continue reading in verse 46 and 47 and 48. When He sent them away, He departed to the mountain to pray. Now that would annoy the practical among Him. They would say He's so heavenly minded He's not worth any earthly good. Verse 47. When evening came, which is around 6 p.m., the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. So in the evening, around 6 p.m., he puts them in the boat. He looks off in another miracle, according to John, three or four miles into the distance and sees them straining at rowing, and he comes to them at the fourth watch. Now, the Roman watch, that's Roman reckoning of time. The first watch would begin at evening when the sun went down around 6 p.m. It would last three hours to nine. The second watch from nine to 12. The third watch from 12 to three. And the fourth watch would start at three in the morning. Now, if he put them out to sea and compelled and forced them into the boat at 6 p.m., and comes to them at the third watch at 3 a.m., how long does he watch them struggle and strain with the wind? Well, the winds are against them. It should have been a short trip across this sea. It's only eight miles long. But they are struggling and straining for six hours, and he lets them struggle all the way through. And only after about six hours, maybe a little more, only after that time does he come after them. In other words, these fellows are straining against the wind in this storm, in this difficulty, as experienced seamen because they did what Jesus wanted them to do. They were not struggling because of their disobedience. They were struggling because of their obedience. They did what He wanted them to do. Their lives were in jeopardy for these hours because Jesus put them in the middle of it. Apparently, there are times when Jesus rejects notions of human safety. But if you know anything about the Lord, I'd rather be on the sea and the wind and a boat in His will than on the shore outside of it. And that's what they discovered. Well, verse 48. Then He saw them, again, three or four miles off, according to John 6, 18, straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of the night, He came to them, walking on the sea, and he would have passed them by. Well, Jesus lets them struggle for six hours. Don't you think you could have showed up much earlier? I suspect that the moment the winds came their way, they had one schedule. 
But the Lord Jesus had a different schedule. Uh, D.L. Moody was pacing the floor one time, and his wife asked him why he was pacing. He said, because I have a schedule and God doesn't share it. Immediate rescue is not what they needed. They needed someone to wait it out until they had learned enough and were emotionally and mentally conditioned enough to change. That happened to me when I was a boy in Houston. Fire ants were first uh, introduced to the Gulf Coast. I, I think they began in New Orleans, but they quickly made their way to Houston, a much preferable city. But uh, anyway, I uh, came to uh, my grandparents' home and stayed there for a while. My dad was on cruise for nine months, and so we moved back to Houston and stayed there. And I'd never seen a fire ant hill, and I went out to investigate one one day. My mother and my grandparents saw me, and I, I, I think it's my first memory that I, I've ever had in my life. I was maybe four years old or so. And they scooped me up and carried me away and chastised me for wanting to play with fire ants. Well, that wasn't enough. I went back for a second time. And they scooped me up and removed me away. Well, I returned a third time, and there was no interference. And I looked at the anthill and began to dig my fingers into it. About that time, I turned over my shoulder, and looking through a bay window was my grandfather, grandmother, and mother with an old-fashioned bug spray canister and a can of Raid smiling. Well, about the time I saw that, I came unglued because what surely was millions of fire ants covered me up and began to uh, penetrate my skin with uh, their fierce fangs. And then they came. I had to endure that, and they had to take some time and let me learn my lesson. This is what Jesus is doing here. In other words, simple Bible reading and Bible teaching and an experience with Christ was not enough. They needed a storm. Well, it goes on in verse 48. He came to them walking on the sea, and in verse 51, when he got into the boat, the wind ceased. Most scholars think that the Gospel of Mark really happens to be Mark's arrangement of Peter's sermons, delivered and given to Christians in Rome who were enduring terrible persecution, Roman paganism, and Roman skepticism. And so when God delivers a book to a struggling, suffering, skeptical world, what does He do? He gives them the gospel that has more verses as a percentage of the gospel dedicated to miracles than any of the other gospels. He puts miracles up front, like the walking on the water. Now, if you were speaking to a skeptical age, what would you say and do with them? If you were speaking to a skeptical people, what would you do? I, I think I would have to begin with some reason and begin with an intellectual debate and argument. But you understand, this is not what God does in His Word. In fact, God begins His book with the miracle of creation. God begins the New Testament with the miracle of the virginal conception and birth of Christ. And He ends His book with the wild and apocalyptic miracles found in the book of Revelation. God says, I am a miracle-working God. Get over it and deal with it. I'm not backing down. I'm not hiding, submerging, or minimizing the miraculous and the supernatural. This is who I am. And let me make sure we understand. 
Without the miraculous, there is no Christian faith. If the miraculous is removed out of the Christian faith, you no longer have the Christian faith. You may have an ethical system, maybe a philosophical system, but you no longer have the Christian faith. The Christian faith is based on miracles. The birth of Christ, the virginal conception, and uh, the virginal birth. And then the cross of Christ, and then his resurrection. And this is what led Karl Barth, the Swiss theologian, who was really no friend to Bible-believing Christians. He said to Rudolf Bultmann, who removed the miraculous out of the New Testament, in a letter one day, you are not a Christian because you do not believe the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was right. So Jesus not only rejects human schemes and safety and scheduling, Jesus rejects human skepticism and does not accommodate it. Well, we go on in verse number 49 and 50. When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, watch this, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. What are you thinking, Jesus? These winds and this storm are so fierce and vicious, they have frightened the daylights out of experienced seamen. And then you show up and your appearance frightens them so badly they think you're a ghost. So we've been straining for six hours, we're exhausted and we are fatigued. We've had the daylight scared out of us. Our lives are in peril. And you tell us, cheer up, it's me. Don't be afraid. Jesus here, I think, doesn't have an awful lot of sensitivity to human sensitivities. In other words, he's like the head coach who tells weary and exhausted players at the fourth quarter of a game when they're down 65 to 13, put your helmet on, get on the front line in a three-point stance, and stop whining. Now, I want to tell you, the Lord Jesus is a marvelous comforter, but he knows when to deliver a challenge, and that's precisely what he does here. Well, we continue in verse 51 and verse 52. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. They were inflexible. They were not willing to change. God had to fit into a prescribed approach. God had to fit into their preconceived notions, and they could not change them. They were hardened even after seeing the feeding of the 5,000 and hearing the words of the Lord Jesus. They just didn't get it. It's like one young man I heard of who had been married a year, and it had been a rocky year with his wife. And he went to his dad, and he said, Dad, We've just got some trouble. I don't know what to do. I love her, but we just can't get along. What in the world do we do? He said, well, do something big for your first anniversary. And so he came back a little while later, and his dad asked him, what are you going to do for your first anniversary? He said, well, uh, I I, I bought her a trip to Hawaii. He said, for your first anniversary? How are you going to top that your second anniversary? He said, I'm going to fly out and go get her. Some people just don't understand, do they? They just don't get it. For the disciples, 
their own devotional life and hearing sermons from the master teacher and their own experience with Christ was not enough to provoke reasonable change. So what do they get? They get a storm. He sends challenge, strain, exhaustion, and fatigue. He had a design for them to build them into people who could change the world by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were far, far behind, even after all this time. You know, they would have been satisfied to just have a little sweet devotional life and listen to a few messages and go on the way they were, but he would have none of it. He pressed them. So let me summarize the text by saying, when Jesus walked on water, he rejected and offended nearly every first century value that these men held. And that's not unusual when it comes to the Lord. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, he says, My ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 remind us that the stone... The building material that the builders rejected, God has made the chief cornerstone. And He is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. God does not always walk according to human ways, and He sure does not arrange our lives the way oftentimes we anticipate. Those of you that have known the Lord for a long time, you know that, don't you? When you walk closely to God, He's never boring, and you can almost never catch your breath in this life. Well, what does that mean if we're going to follow Jesus? To follow Jesus means we embrace His offenses and His rejections. We appreciate them. And so what that means is, is that our walk with Jesus Christ will oftentimes put us at odds with prevailing values, and it may even put us at odds with ourselves. And we can only follow Jesus fully, sincerely, seriously, whenever we embrace His offenses and His rejections. Well, let me ask this question. Why should I embrace His offenses? Well, we find some things in the text. And first is His command. His command. Verse 45 says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. They were in the boat struggling with the wind in this storm. As experienced seamen, not because they were disobedient, but because they were obedient. Now again, these were experienced seamen. They knew the conditions. They knew the winds at night. They were accustomed to determining the weather that would be on the sea. I think most likely these fellows knew what they were getting into, and yet they did it anyway. In church of God and people of God and those who are curious about Him, let me say to you that the Lord gives a command is enough. He does not have to explain Himself. And that is the key to understanding, for example, Job in the book of Job. He goes through all sorts of trials and difficulties with his health and with his family and everything in between. He has friends who completely misinterpret nearly everything God is doing in his life 
He moans and mourns and then gets into whining and complaining. And God answers him in the last few chapters of the book of Job and never answers his questions, but penetrates and pelts him with questions. That's oftentimes how God does it. God is not obligated to explain. We're obligated to obey. And if he has commanded us, that's enough. It comes from Him. It comes from a God of love. It comes from a God of authority. It comes from a God of lordship. It comes from a God who is worthy of our obedience. And that leads me to the second reason we need to embrace His offenses. Not only His command, but His glory. Now there's glory that surfaces in four elements of this text. Verse 48, He saw them straining at the rowing. He looks off in the distance, 25 to 30 stadia, which is a Jewish measurement, which is about three or four miles. He looks off into the distance and he sees them straining. Jesus knew everything they were enduring. Jesus knew their capacity. Jesus knew their challenge. Jesus knew their difficulties. And Jesus knows yours as well. Jesus Christ knows everything going through your mind, every detail of your relationships, everything that's going on in your home and in your marriage and where you work, everything about you, He knows, and He delivers this Word to you anyway. In fact, He delivers it to you as a gracious gift. He is knowledgeable, and He knows how to handle it. But not only His knowledge, but also His walk. There's glory in his walk and there's glory in his knowledge. In verse 48, at the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Job imagined in Job 9.8 and Job 9.11 and 38.16, God walking by them over the waters. And Jesus Christ identifies himself as that same God. The physical properties of water then did not endanger him and they did not hinder him because even the waters, as unstable as they are, are under his feet. He's able to walk on water. He deserves glory. He's worthy of that obedience. But then, his intention. Look there in verse 48. He was walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Now, when you read that, what do you recall from the Old Testament when God passed by someone one time? Moses had come down off the mount from God, delivered the Ten Commandments, but broke them because the people of Israel had sinned with the golden calf. They had made an image of God, a physical representation of the real God, and worshipped it, is what they had done. They had mixed Egypt with biblical Judaism, and they worshipped that God. Moses broke the Ten Commandments. God threatened to annihilate all of Israel. Moses pleaded with God not to do so, and God relented. But then Moses, exhausted, fatigued, stressed, and worried, said, God, please, after all of this, would you let me see your glory? What he'd experienced in deliverance of the Ten Commandments had not been enough. Moses wanted more from God. And so God lifted him up in Exodus 34 and placed him in the cleft of the rock. And in Exodus 34, he passed by him. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word used there for pass by in Exodus 34, 6 is precisely the same word used here in verse number 48. You see, Jesus Christ had once passed by one of his servants, Moses, and he does it again here 
in this text. It's not that he's going to leave them behind. It's that he is unveiling his glory before him. And so the Jesus walking on the sea by the disciples is the same God walking past Moses in Exodus 34 to show him his glory. So there's glory in his knowledge, his walk, his intention. But then there's glory in his statement. Look at verse number 50. They all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Ego I me. Used frequently in the Gospels when Jesus said, It is I. First spoken in Aramaic or Hebrew. And it would have sounded much like Yahweh from Exodus chapter 6. God revealed himself in his name to Moses and said, I am Yahweh, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are nine ways to translate that, but referring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God is saying there, I will be who I have been. And Jesus here is reenacting that same scene from Exodus 6. He was the God who appeared to Moses there in Exodus 6. He's now the God unveiling himself before the disciples in Mark chapter 6. He's claiming, I will be everything you've known me to be. God shows us what he'll do in our lives and encourages us. This is what he does in this text. In other words, Jesus is saying, it is me in this storm. It is me that has commanded you. It's not Satan creating trouble in your life. It's not a figment of your imagination. You're not, a mis- you're not misinterpreting these events, and it certainly isn't some silly superstition like luck or fate. All of this is taking place. It is me. I'm behind it all. And I want to encourage you, as someone who has suffered, and as someone who's not speaking out of a vacuum, when the winds are howling, and you're straining at them to get your boat across that lake to safety, the very best truth to start with when you consider how God relates to it all is God is in control of everything. I know, I know, I know what that means. I know. I understand. But nothing arrives in the life of a child of God without first passing through His loving hands. Handicaps and death and reversal and sorrow and pain, everything. It passes through His hands first. And beloved, it has a divine design. He says to you, it is I, it is me. Jesus unveils his glory with his knowledge, walk, intention, and statement. Ladies and gentlemen, he is glorious, and that means the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of obedience in everything. But I fear that some may not be as impressed with Jesus as maybe they once were at one time. Sometimes we get so accustomed to abundant life, and we get so accustomed to the name and his majesties that We're not nearly as impressed as maybe we once were. I remember when I was in seminary in North Carolina, there was a day when uh, Sherry Michelle brought home groceries. And I'll never forget what I saw. I I think maybe the children were uh, reenacting a scene out of a movie. And at that time, Jonathan and Hannah Grace were real small children. But she brought in the milk and bread first. And Jonathan goes up to the table and grabs the milk. And here's what he says. Milk! Milk! We have milk! 
And Hannah Grace grabs the bread and puts it over like, like a victor's trophy. Bread! Bread! We have bread! And I'm hardly exaggerating. That's why I think they were parroting a movie of some kind. They were thrilled that we had bread and milk. And it was quite humorous. But I, I mention that because it wasn't long after that that I told them that one day Jesus is going to return. And you know what they did? They had a similar reaction. They were standing on the vinyl seat of this borrowed table and chair, and they jumped up and down and waved their hands and were thrilled at the knowledge that for the first time in their life, they heard Christ was going to return, and they could barely contain themselves. How long has it been since your heart has been thrilled with the Lord Jesus? He is glorious, and He is worthy of all obedience, even if it's against our own natural inclinations. His command and His glory. But there's a, there's a third thing, and that is His ways. I was a centrifuge camp pastor, a youth camp pastor for several summers, and I did not only the pastoral preaching and ministry in the evening during our worship services, but I also did recreation during the day. So that required two different sets of dress. And when I was in seminary, I don't know how this happened, but someone made popular a type of short that looked like someone found leftover Hawaiian shirts and turned them into shorts. And that's what we all wear in those days. And I had that on in some Christian t-shirt and a ball cap and tennis shoes, and I was headed out to the recreation field one day, and one of the campers was with his Bible study leader, and he asked her, who is that? Apparently, I was quite a disappointing sight to see that day. And she said, that is the camp preacher. And he said, that doesn't look like any preacher I've ever seen. Sometimes, those things that minister to us don't always come dressed like we expect them to come dressed. Sometimes we'd like a Bible study or a kind word. Jesus gives a storm and howling winds. This happens to be His ways. Jesus knew their hearts that they were hardened in verse 52. And He gave them contrary winds to mold them into His image. And it would be a lovely thing if all we needed to change and be transformed into Christ's likeness happened to be Bible reading and sermons and Christian fellowship. That would be a lovely thing. And I imagine there are probably some who change merely at in the presence of those things. But many do not. And so he sends winds of apocalyptic proportions to get us to change. And perhaps that might explain, maybe not, but maybe that, that may explain why there is some wind and some striving in your life. Some of you, God may have given you a marriage that at times is very unpleasant. I know one fellow came to me one day and said, I just feel like we're the opposite from each other. I said, well, you're exactly right. You're a man, she's a woman. You can't get more opposite than that. Live with it and appreciate it. Appreciate the difference. It could be a coworker 
It could be a neighbor. It could be surgery that is God's minister. It could be a giving opportunity. It could be a worship style. It could be some disappointment. It could be a setback. God knows oftentimes exposure to the Bible and fellowship is not enough to change some people's lives. And so, He turns up the heat and makes things difficult. Somebody has wisely said, some Christians are like tea bags. They're not much good until you put them into hot water. And I think that could be true. So many would be very satisfied with a little spiritual exercise and an experience with Christ. And as long as they're satisfied and no change is required, that's okay with them. I need to let you know that is not okay with God. And unless God decides to set you on the shelf and never use you again, it will never, ever be enough for Him. We do not live to our own satisfaction. We seek with all of our hearts to live towards His satisfaction. It is He who is to be satisfied. And if necessary, He will press us and upset us until we look like His Son. Now Jesus said in verse 50, Be of good cheer. That's translated, take courage, have courage. And then he said, do not be afraid. Why? Because it is me. It is me. Have you ever looked into the cockpit of a commercial jet? You get on a plane to fly and the doors open. It's not always open, but once in a while it is and you look in. If it were left up to me to fly one of those things, we'd all die. I don't have the ability or the knowledge to, um, to do that. But the truth is, every time I've flown on a plane, I've arrived. I've been a passenger on many commercial jets, and I've entrusted my life to the pilot and the co-pilot. Have you ever been a passenger in a car? Well, obviously you have. Um, and quite frankly, you've had an awful lot of faith because I know some of the people you're trying to drive with. You've entrusted your life to a driver. That's what you've done. Jesus Christ is calling you to trust in Him. And you have already trusted another human. It's time to trust the God who walks on water to embrace Him. Let's pray about it. Father, we confess... that oftentimes our hearts are inflexible and we resist change, we resist growth. And some of us haven't changed in a while. Some of us have never changed at the move of your hand. But to prompt change, dear God, you've put contrary winds in our way. And I want to pray, dear God, that today we would not waste any of these winds. Help us to see you for who you are, the great God of glory. And let us give you admission into our ship. And Lord, today for some, that would mean trusting you to take the burden of guilt and sin by coming to Christ. And for others, that means uniting with Beach Haven. For others, it means laying down some bitterness or worry or resistance 
stubbornness, obstinacy. Let us give you the entrance that you deserve in the name of Him who has no difficulty walking on water. Now our staff are going to be standing up here in the front and we want to give you all the spiritual help that you need. We're going to sing a song after we stand and I want to ask you to come and to come quickly and meet a staff member here and share your spiritual need and you're going to find God is faithful when you trust Him. Would you quickly stand and let's sing together.